You'll have to forgive me as I'm feeling just a little bit proud, but mainly and very much so grateful to you, the listener. You, the listener, for helping us make this podcast what it has become, for helping us to reach the 100th podcast. In this episode, we recorded a special live event in front of a live audience at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney with three of the leading minds in wealth management. Thank you once again for making this podcast what it has become, and I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did recording it. Please remember to keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Please remember to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the episode. I've got a man counting me down up there. We're all good? Well, we at Coda believe it's important to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today. The Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as traditional custodians of the place we now call Sydney. I'd like to pay my respects to the elders past, present and future. Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. Thanks for joining us and I hope you're going to be in for a real treat tonight as we've got some of the true leading minds in wealth management to be here to celebrate our 100th podcast episode. Um, There's some big thank yous I'd like to say and as I said the podcast is to mark the 100th episode. Um, It's actually a bit like the Tokyo Olympics that was supposed to be 2020. We're actually at 116 podcasts and we're a bit delayed on it but thanks for staying with us. But some of the stats I thought would be helpful to mark and thank those people involved and many of people who have been in the podcast are in the crowd which is great. Uh, We're up to 250,000 listeners or downloads and we've got listeners spanning the globe from Kazakhstan to the Cayman Islands. So that listener or those handful of listeners in Kazakhstan, thanks for that. (laughs) Keep it up. As I said, we're at 116 episodes and still going. And that actually puts us in the top 1% of all podcasts in the 2 million podcasts that exist. So we're pretty proud of that and thank you for you, the listeners, clients and also the people who have given us the content as well and the guests. So we, sl- we started in July 17 and I remember, I'll introduce you to Rhett in a moment, I rang Rhett up and I said, I've got this idea, how about I sit down and have a conversation with you when we start this podcast? And he, he said, yeah, okay, we'll do it. And at the end of that month, July 17, I clicked on and thought, see how many people listen? And I went, yes, 30 people listened. How terrific's that? And I know two of them were my mother. So, <laughs> so uh, since then, at, to give you an idea, the start of this year for the first four months, we've averaged around 8,000 listens per month. So we've got quite a bit of growth and we think that we've been true to label in that we've promised to bring you the interviews with leading minds in, the, in wealth management and we've scoured the world and, in fact, interviewed in New York, London, Israel and via Skype everywhere with people like Cathy Wood, John Hempton, Hamish Douglas, not to mention those in the room and those we're about to talk about. I'd really like to go out of my way to thank those Inside the Rope alumni that are in the room. I think there's about a dozen of you. If you could raise your hands, maybe you'll see the managers that are in the room, including actually Stephen Paul as well at the back. So thank you for that. Um, It's really appreciated. The other big thank you that really needs to go out is to my son, Josh. Josh is now 20, but he started at the age of 15 as the chief editor and only editor of the podcast at boarding school. A file was shared to him, and whilst he was in study, uh, he'd have his headphones on pretending there to be studying and edit edit the podcast and publish it. So thanks to Josh. A big thanks also to Tom Oriel, Tom down the front here, who works with me and my team at Coda. 
um, is the producer of the podcast for the last three years and done a terrific job, along with my fellow partners at Coda, not to mention Quentin Reeve, who I've driven crazy over the last three or four years with this. So that's enough of the thank yous. What I'd like to do is move on to introducing the guests. We've got a real treat today. and We've got some of the best Australian equities managers and managers we've got in Australia to talk to us. So I'd like to start with the introduction of Alexandra Clark. Clark with an E, she's from the elite side of the Clarks. And like myself, is the co-PM manager at Elliston Capital, the fund manager that spun out of the Packer family office. Alex is the co-manager of the Microcap Fund, which has returned over 20% per annum over its life. So please join me in welcoming Alex to the stage. <laughs> Next up, we've got someone who really doesn't need much uh, introduction in the Australian funds management industry. And for those of you who have listened to the podcast, you'll recognise his dulcet tones from episode 27, 48 and 65. He's an inductee of the Australian Funds Managers Hall of Fame. I'm sure many of you didn't know there was one. I want to know if they get a yellow jacket like the NFL Hall of Fame. He'll be able to tell us. Um, to give, and I'd, I'd go as far to say that he's probably Australia's most prominent hedge fund manager. To give you an idea of some of his success and achievements, to, to talk about the fund, uh, which I know Phil talks about his mother being invested into. If you had to put $100,000 into that fund in 2004, you, you'd now be sitting on a value of $7.65 million. For those reaching for the calculator, that's just over 27% per annum. So join me in welcoming Phil King to the stage. Now, last but not least, someone that's quite dear to my heart and someone I'd like to call a good friend and be an influence on myself. And uh, as I alluded to before, when I first thought of this idea, I couldn't think of anyone better to reach out to than Rhett Kessler. Rhett is, uh, in episode 132 and 50, the person who got the ball rolling, uh, founder and portfolio manager of Pangana Australian Equities. Please join, join me in welcoming Rhett to the stage. So perhaps I could start off by asking the panel um, when you decided or where it became apparent to you that you're going to spend your life managing money. I think it's always been a, a, a great challenge out there. So I started my career as a sell-side analyst. So with the stroke of a pen, you change the forecast, you change the recommendations, you're buying, selling things. But it's only one side of the equation. What I wanted to do was get to the other side of the equation, which is actually the managing of the money. So at the end of the day... You, it's a lot about managing risk, it's about managing the, the thought of um, what companies do I want to invest in, how liquid are they, where do they sit in the portfolio and the challenge of that and the fact that every single day I could look at a new business, see a new industry, meet a, guys that are basically the leading edge of whatever their sort of business they're in, whether it's a automaker, whether it's a agricultural company, whether it's a biotech, that you're seeing something at the start of its evolution, especially for what I do, which is at the smaller end of the market. And I thought this was going to be a great career. Like how much fun are you going to have every day looking at something new? Fantastic. And Phil, was there a defining moment when you can remember the calling? I've always been fascinated by the stock market. I think I bought my first shares when I was about 14. But I think my first introduction to the stock market was when I was about four or five. And I'm sure that'd be hard to beat here. 
four or five. I remember visiting my grandparents and at one o'clock every day, my grandmother would turn on the ABC radio and listen to um, the lunchtime stock prices from the Sydney Stock Exchange. And I just found it fascinating. Um, she you know, wrote down these numbers in a little exercise book in pencil every day. Um, and I was always intrigued ever since I heard her do that every single day. Um, and the two lessons I think I took away from that was, you know, I've always been intrigued to know that what's the purpose of information if you don't use it? And she'd write the, these numbers down every day, but she'd never trade. Um, so I always found, why waste your time? <laughs> and I think even today, a lot of people waste time tick watching and yep. also learning about companies, various aspects of a company that's not going to really influence their decisions. And the second thing I think, the second takeaway from watching my grandmother every day listen to the ABC radio was she had a list of what you might call penny dreadfuls that she bought in the 1960s mining boom. And, um, you know, I was always intrigued in that. I thought, why don't you buy some good companies? But um, I, I think, you know, I'm probably one to kind of be a bit negative on passive investing from time to time. But I think, you know, there's a lot to be positive about passive investing and you know we focus on the fact that passive investing makes us buy stocks that are going up but one of the big benefits of passing investing as well I think is it forces us to sell the losers and I think that's one of the hardest challenges for investors is selling losers and my grandmother was stuck with all these penny dreadfuls from the 1960s mining boom and I do wonder you know I'm, you know I do wonder whether in five years time a lot of people will be looking at their portfolios and they'll own all these penny dreadfuls in technology stocks. And I think, yeah. why on earth did I buy that? And Seemed uh, like a good idea. Yeah, it's going to be interesting, I think. But that was my first introduction to the stock market when I was about four or five and I've always been intrigued. Well, that's a new then. record, four or five. Wow. Yeah. Rhett, um, was there a defining moment you can remember? Or yeah, well, I'm Ang? probably showing my age. I got into the industry in 87, about three months before. And I remember coming home sort of absolutely devastated by the, the crash. I, mean, I knew nothing. And my dad said, what's up? And I said, oh, you know, the market's done. I've, I've ruined my career. And he quietly said, get in the car. And we got in the car and he drove off for miles and miles. We lived in Johannesburg at the time and we drove through suburb after suburb and he kept saying, what's on the left, what's on the right? And I kept saying cars, houses, people. And after about half an hour, I said to him, okay, I get there are a lot of houses, cars, people. What's, what's the point? And I was feeling dreadful. And he turned around to me and he said, now, you know, Johannesburg's a pimple on the bum of the rest of the world. He said, but tomorrow morning, that guy over there, and I'll never forget the guy in a singlet pushing his mower, he's going to get up and he, he'll want his toilet paper and he'll want his toothpaste and he'll want his toasties. And he doesn't care whether the stock market's crashed or not. And that, that was my introduction. I thought, you know, if I can buy toilet paper and toothpaste type companies, I'll be all right. Um, Fantastic. I love it. I that, know where the story comes from now. That, that's I've been really, listen, listening to the toilet paper and toothpaste. That's where it comes <laughs> from. Yeah, all these so, years. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, he taught me a valuable lesson like, to get, get perspective. Now, you're all fantastic investors and predominantly in Australian shares, but I suspect the way in which you go about it is slightly different. I'm really intrigued about the behaviours behind it and some of those traits that drive you and lead you to be such successful people. I think one of the things I'm interested to know and hopefully we'll see how this plays out in that I'd like to, if you could tell us during the COVID crash, 2020 March, I think the market ASX dropped something like 31, 32 
20% in the space of a couple of weeks. Oh, don't me. Really interested to understand, maybe we could start with you, Rhett, in tell me what you did then. Because I think what I'm interested in is the behaviours and how you yeah. react to that sort of... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's horrible. Don't, don't get me wrong, it's horrible. Uh, we were lucky, but sometimes you make your own luck. So we had, we had 20, 25% of our portfolio in cash, not because we knew COVID was coming, but we thought the market was expensive. And we had a ton of insurance puts, so we got really lucky. Um, and so when the market started falling, we, like everybody else, thought this could be the end of the world, you know? Full of paper, toothpaste, you don't need that if you're dying. Um, I mean, it's a pandemic. So, yeah, it took a while to wrap our heads around it. But then we started, we started doing what we call, and please excuse the language, but we started what we call vomit buying. And that is where you buy something and then you stand up and you walk around your desk trying hard not to vomit because it's dropped another 5% and you buy some more. And it's all based on... It's a weird thing. You've got to keep yourself psychologically whole, which is not easy. Um, and then you, you have a whole lot of things in place, particularly for those times, like insurance, like cash, like understanding, like having more than one person doing the gig because you need somebody else to carry the backpack when you're feeling terrible. You need, uh, you need your wife and kids to give you a little bit of quiet when you come home and, uh, and sometimes even a shoulder to cry on because it's a tough time. But, you know, that's, that's, I guess that's, that's when real money gets made. Yep. Thank you. And, and Alex, I'd imagine in the microcap space, it would have been a wild old ride and many of those stocks would have maybe become hard to trade or illiquid or some of the positions. How did you guys handle it at Elliston? No, it was a, a very tough time. So we, the market bottomed on the Monday. I got married on the Saturday before it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we're sort of, me and my um, co-portfolio manager, David Keelan, we're sitting, I was getting married up at Noosa, we're sitting in a hotel room at Noosa trading the book on Thursday and Friday, trying to make sure that um, we're getting liquidity out where it was there, we're getting our cash up, we're working out where our conviction lies. Lay, so we're trying to work out what stocks do we really have high conviction? What stocks, no matter their environment, are still going to be there tomorrow? That have earnings, that have cash flow, that have the balance sheet, no matter their environment, that the market might have priced them correctly, but we know they're going to survive. And so we positioned the book like that. I got married on the Saturday, was back at work on the Monday, and the day the market bottomed. And just like Rhett said, it's you have to just hold your nerve and you know what a good business is, and it, the market might be priced it right, right at that moment, but you need to sit there, and we're paid to invest. So we can't sit there and be 100% cash, and so we're there to take a view, pick the stocks that have a good solid balance sheet that you know the cash flow is going to come in at some point, and that you, is trading at a multiple that you think is somewhat maintainable. It might move a bit in these volatile markets, but. We're a microcap fund, and so we look at a three to one risk return. So we want one side downside, three times upside, mm -hmm. and that's what the portfolio did in COVID. So we were probably down, had a beta down of sort of 1.3, 1, 1 and we had a two times beta on the way up. So it, we were actually quite pleased how the portfolio performed is because the risk that we managed in that book actually played out. So it was uncomfortable at the, on the days, but this is what you're there for. You're there to manage these big volatile mo 
movement and also it gave you a great opportunity to pick up stocks that for the last 6, 12, 18 months you went, that's too expensive. And all of a sudden you're picking them up at 40, 60, 80% of where they were trading before. If you had the cash to do if it. If you had the cash. And so Awful. that's why being selling some of your liquids early when liquidity is actually still sitting there and it hasn't dried up and also rotating making sure that you're selling, maybe have some conviction, something that's a bit more liquid, but it's not a good a deal as something that you're seeing over here. And so being able to rotate into it. And the fall in the portfolio from the top pre-pandemic to the bottom was about how far? We fell about 30% from memory. And then what was amazing about the COVID bounce, normally micro caps do not lead you out mm -hmm. of a, a big correction. But microcaps this time were the ones that bounced the heaviest mm -hmm. on the way out and the fastest. Terrific and well done. Phil, I think you're, you might have a slightly different approach in, in, in the way you handled it, but I'm, I'm intrigued to hear. Yeah, look, I've got to say we weren't perfectly positioned when the pandemic hit. I'd been through swine flu and SARS and all that. I shouldn't point it out. One of the episodes that was reflected to me the other day by, by Tom that we'd actually done a podcast, A Great Time to Invest, in the January before. Okay. Well, <laughs> did I say that? Yeah. <laughs> as, I said, as I said, I didn't see it coming. <laughs> um, and, and so, no been through all these other things, I thought, oh, this will blow over. Um, but then, you know, one thing I've learned through experience is if the market thinks it's a problem, it's a problem. And so, you don't fight the tape. And so, when the market started going down, you know, you've just got to go a little bit into, you know, risk reduction mode and survival mode. First rule of risk management is survival. And um, so, you know, that's the, the, the kind of rule we took. And, you know, we'd learned some valuable lessons in the GFC. I think a lot of our investors were a lot more stable this time. In the GFC, we were dealing with a lot of fund of funds that were redeeming money at the same time as, you know, stocks were falling. And that's very hard when you're forced to sell your own positions when you want to be buying. So this time, at least we didn't have the investor redemptions that we had in the GFC. Um, and look, the market fell, I think it fell 30% over four weeks or something like that, which was hugely significant, a lot greater than what probably most people thought. Um, but then I think a lot of experienced investors kind of remembered back to 87, right? Mm -hmm. um, when I think the market fell maybe 30% or so over a couple of months. And then we had the capitulation of Black Monday or Black Tuesday in Australia. Um, and so I think a lot of experienced investors were battening down the hatches and uh, preparing for, you know, capitulation. Um, whereas a lot of smarter investors than me or less experienced investors than me were happy to step into the market. Um, so, you know, we were, you know, we were trying to be positioned for the worst, but at the same time, you call it vomit buying, I call it closing my eyes and buying. Right. Um, sometimes you do have to just buy stocks, darkest before dawn, buy when things look terrible. And, you know, we're fortunate that we have a big short book. And so, you know, in some ways, if you're covering shorts, it doesn't really hurt. It's called risk reduction. So you kind of, <laughs> it's always good to be able to cover shorts in those sort of times. And then, you know, I did actually do some a good buying as well, just a week or so before the end of March. You know, we'd seen one of the biggest negative moves in equity markets. I think we'd seen bonds rally and I knew for a lot of balance funds, they'd have to do a bit of rebalancing at the end of that month. And so we did see a bit of a, a bounce at the end of the month. I'd tell my team, you know, even dead cats bounce at times. And so 
it was always going to bounce. And then, you know, I, I guess I initially thought it was just a dead cap bounce. I thought that we'd go back and retest the lows. Um, but then the rally just kept going. And I think it left a lot of people short or underweight. But again, don't fight the tape. If the market wants to go up, it's going to go up. And so I think one thing that we're good at at Regal is changing our mind. We're not proud. If we're wrong, we're wrong. And, you know, we're happy to kind of do what the market's telling us it wants to do. Now, one of the things I alluded to I'm very keen on is understanding the traits behind each, each of you that led you to be so successful. Um, if you had to identify one trait that you have that's led you to be a successful investor, what would that be? Maybe start with you, Alex. I'm probably sceptical uh, from the starting point that you have. I think to be a good investor, you have to look at things with open eyes, but you also have to be willing to see where it could go, but also the downside risk of it. So uh, I think from my point of view, I, I look at every opportunity from a sceptical nature, but also you have to work out why you're biased that way. So do you not like it because you don't like the management team? Do you not like it because it's an industry that you think has structural issues, things like that? But once you get your head around all of that, then how far is the upside potential? So I think that helps me going in. Also, as Phil was saying before, you have to be willing to change your mind. Just because if your investment thesis is one way, everything's playing out and something happens in the company, something changes, you can't put your head in the sand and, and think that, oh, I'll just change my thesis and it will be right. But being willing to change your mind and saying, no, the thesis has changed, I'm out, means that it's far easier to control your emotions because you go, well, I invested on these facts and now they're these facts, so I'm mm -hmm. moving on. So I think those two things really help. I also think that um, having a curiosity about how technology or um, how the environment's going to change and where things can get to and how, how businesses grow. I think when you're at the smaller end of the market, you're talking to these founders, usually in a micro cap sense, and so they're building a new shed manufacturing line. They're doing something and actually spending the time with them and really actually wanting to understand how their business works, you get far more out of it. And so having that curiosity, I think, is really key. Terrific. Asked for one, I got four. Well done. <laughs> Rhett, how about yourself? Yeah, well, you put me on the curiosity one. I think, you know, this, this constant roller coaster that we're all on, where market swings from greed to fear and back again when you least expect it, it's, it um, can wear you down if you're not absolutely curious. So my family hates the fact that when I walk into a restaurant for the first five minutes, I'm counting the tables, looking at the average price point of the menu, I call the manager over, I ask if they're busy or they're open at lunchtime, and I'm trying to work out if they're making a buck or not in, in, in the, you know, on the day or on the week. And so that curiosity takes you to places that, that, that create the opportunities. Um, and that's what I love about it. There isn't another industry I can think of that you get the captains of industry coming into you and telling you the tricks and traps of their business. I love that. Are they always um, honest when they tell you the tricks and traps? Uh, and I'm asking this. I said I wouldn't raise it, but I will. But what, what is it? The FBI, CIA trained? Yeah, he says you went. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, look, I mean, everybody, everybody markets, right? Everybody's got their story and their barrow to push. You have to, you have to be curious about why they're saying things. And the curiosity that I'm referring to is not just, you know, I'm interested. It's, it's why, why they suddenly sped up 
in the pace of language. Why are they using we instead of I all of a sudden? Um, pronouns always give it away. You know, I had a good why are they taking that, that approach rather than that approach? I met with a small cap manager yesterday. They said they just sold a position based on the fact that a fund manager, uh, sorry, a company CEO hadn't returned their calls over the last couple of weeks and only that they found out yesterday issued a downgrade. So uh, th that was one for them. Yeah. Phil, traits? Yeah, look, I, I think I'm very similar to you guys. I think sceptical is a great word. I think curious is a great word. Um, I think, you know, I'm, I'm very curious too. I think Wikipedia is one of the most used apps on my phone. Um, you know, my dad's nickname was Fess or Professor because he always asked questions. His dad worked on the Sydney Morning Herald as a journalist and editor, always, you know, keen to work out what's going on. So I think being curious is, is very good, sceptical. You know, disciplined, you know, you've got to be hold to your guns even when everyone else is telling you you're an idiot. And also look good with numbers. Um, and I think, you know, you've got to have some understanding of numbers and, and just the ability to make, you know, decisions as to what's important, you know, and, and how things fit together. Now, a question for the, the panel again. Um, what are some of the common mistakes you see retail mum and dad investors make when you see them investing? And maybe we can combine that with some of the common biases and how you try to guard against those. Um, do you want to kick off maybe, Alex? I think Phil touched on it earlier on. It's the fact that I think generally professional managers are probably slightly more disciplined at selling a position where I think there's a bit of a, I bought it at $10, it's now trading at $8, so it's going to have to go back to 10. Like that's just fundamentally has to happen. And I, I think that that's what I, I'm at pains with, with, that you sit there and go back to my earlier statement where if the thesis has changed, why should it trade back at 10? Just move on, there's a better place for your capital. Mm -hmm. That yes, we're long-term investors, but if, if the stock's gone down and if momentum's not there with it and the thesis has changed, move on. Phil? Yeah, look, I think, yeah, that, that's probably one of the most common things. I think most people, including professional investors, find it hard to sell losers and, and buy winners. And, you know, I think most people want to double down. I always tell my team, you know, let's double up, not double down. And let's buy things when they're going up. And I think I've learnt that more on the sell side than anything. Um, you know, I think the most common mistake for people who are new to shorting stocks is to short something that's gone up. And I tell my team, much better to short something that's going down, not something that's going up. Um, and so I think momentum's very, very powerful. And I think that's just because, yeah, um, you know, people often just sell things too quickly, but they buy things too quickly when they're going down. And as a result, momentum can be very powerful in the market. And Rhett, do you have any yeah, common trait mistakes? I'd probably add this meme investing, although it does seem to be a new momentum, it's momentum trading, right? Mm -hmm. And I belong to a few different sport clubs and... Explain for the audience meme investing. Uh, so meme investing is, you know, so if, if, if Elon Musk says that, that Dogecoin is, is good, then, then everyone should buy it, right? Or if he, if he says that batteries are the place to be and lithium's hard to get hold of, then it doesn't matter. Never let the facts get in the way of a good story. If something says it's a lithium stock, even if they're 20 years from producing the first bit of lithium, then just buy lithium because it's going to go up. So that's meme investing, sorry. So 
So like, like everything, I've learned that, that everything's like an onion. It's got lots and lots of different layers. The most common question I get you know, when Telstra comes out with a good result and the stock goes down, you get a lot of people calling me, well, wasn't it a good result? But the, pro the problem is that most professional fund managers are already expecting that. So when it comes out good but not as good as it might have been, that's when they sell it down. So everything's, I think you need to be, if you're going to play, if you're going to play the investment game, like if you're going to be a doctor, you need to know what you're doing. And um, so people, people try to simplify it. Now it's worked, don't get me wrong, it's absolutely worked the last few years and that's given people a lot of confidence. Um, so maybe I'm behind the times, but I think that's, that's one of the biggest mistakes. How do you deal with the pressure? Um, it's been well publicised in the last two years. We've had a lot of high profile, or quite a few high profile Australian managers, some of which have been on the podcast, um, that have had real struggles personally and within the business dealing with the pressure. Um, anyone on the panel want to have a go at how they deal with that um, and, and how they see that evolving? Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll have the... I've already referred to it. I think as well as trying to keep your investors financially sound, you have to keep yourself psychologically sound. And I think that's the most important thing as a you know, fund manager principle. And, and how do you do that? Um, you have to understand your risk appetite. You have to have a plan B and a plan C. Um, and, and I think having, having a bit of spare cash or a bit of spare capacity is always a good thing. Um, but at the end of the day, you're, you're only as good as your support team. Terrific. Now, Alex, I'll direct this one to you. Uh, it's the only one it applies to <laughs> in that we would love to have more and more leading minds in wealth management on the podcast. And unfortunately, we just haven't had enough females on there. Um, and can you tell me about being female in the wealth management in industry? Has it been a hindrance? If so, how so? And how do we get more females into the industry? I actually think that mo most of the time it hasn't actually been a hindrance because I've been in the market for over 15 years. And so when I started out, I was um, luckily enough, I started at a, a firm that had quite a few females and I had a female head of research. So I think that um, helped me out to begin with. But I think having a different perspective to two thirds of the room is actually quite useful. That if you think about some common sectors, so retail, pharmaceutical, all of the groceries, things like that, females just generally have a better idea how they work because they're products that they use. It doesn't mean that the males don't know how to invest in them. We're not doing very well at the hair care. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think that gives you, it gives you a slight advantage because you're not actually having to understand why would somebody want to buy a LaVisa product? Yes. For like plastic jewellery or something like that. So I think that was, that's been beneficial. And um, I think that most, most industries, that there is, a, there is a place in this one for more females to come through. And it's great that the investment banks are doing the heavy lifting at the moment, that their grab programs are sort of probably 50-50, I would mm -hmm. say, coming mm -hmm. through. I think that we're going to, it's going to be a bit of time before you see equilibrium at the portfolio manager level, because you need these smart young females to progress their way through through, learn the skill sets from the, the great portfolio managers that are out there that have been in the market for 20 or 30 years to, to learn off the rests and fills, to be able to build their experience, to be in the position that they can manage money 
appropriately and have the personality and learnt the ability to be able to switch on and switch off. So I think in five years' time, you'll see a lot more of them out there and I think it will be good for, for the market because it will different personalities, whether you're female, male, whether you come from a... Uh, we've got this young fellow that we've recently hired. He's a scaffolder and he's got an actuary degree but he was a full-time scaffolder. He brings a completely different perspective to our investing than I would. And so it's not only having different sexes, it's having people from different backgrounds, different industries to, to be in the market, I think benefits everybody. Terrific, great answer, I really like that. Um, let's pivot the conversation a little bit more to where we are at present time. And over the 20 years that I've been advising clients in the wealth management space, I've never seen a time where we've said, oh, it's really easy time to invest, we should be. It's always, these are interesting times but none more so than at the moment, where we've got a war in, in Europe, we've got a, a Federal Reserve Bank raising rates aggressively and every other time they've raised rates, well, eight out of the 10 times they've done that, it's ended in a recession. Um, and, and we've got massive, we're in the middle of a global pandemic and massive supply chain issues, which are being made worse by a, a very hard lockdown in China with boats still sitting off the coast. Um, where are we today and how are you thinking about things? Not an easy question, so I'll let these guys... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, good um, I think it's important to realise that you, you don't have all the answers, I think. You've got to put your Hall of Fame jacket on before you answer ah. this one. Well, where do I go with that? Um, well, again, it's like Rhett said earlier, you've got to know, you know what's in the market. And, you know, we thought equities were in a, a good place relative to bonds and things like that. And, you know, I think if the market's expecting eight rate rises over the next whatever, then, uh, you know, the, you've got to ask yourself a question, are we going to see more or less than that? That's the question you should be asking. Um, in terms of the market, you know, I think now more than ever, it's just a simplification to talk about the market as a whole. I think, you know, there's a great decoupling occurring at the moment. Um, I think, you know, the NASDAQ, half the stocks in the NASDAQ are off 50% at the moment from their highs last year. Um, and to me, you know, loss-making tech is in a huge bear market and we don't really want to go there at the moment. On the other hand, a lot of the things that you're talking about are, are good for certain stocks. And so we're very positive on the resource sector. You know, we think mainly because of the supply side more than anything. Um, I think, you know, commodity prices will stay strong. Um, over the next five years at least. Um, and so even if we do see a mild recession, um, then I think resources are still a good place to be. Um, so yeah, we're still constructive on the markets um, despite everything that gets thrown at it. Red. So if, if you'll allow me, I'll go back to first principles. This Please is, do. The reason I invest <coughs> is to create or maintain financial independence. So that's how I think about everything. And for me, financial independence or wealth comes from either maintaining or growing your purchasing power of the money that you have. And so if inflation, which is the biggest problem at the moment, is up at 5%, how do you do better than that is how I think about it. And so holding bonds or holding negative yielding interest rate environment, um, instruments just doesn't work for me. So what we have to do is try to find businesses that that can manage through inflation. And, and the way I think about it is if I can find something that has got pricing power and inelasticity of demand, so in other words, they can stick their customers with higher prices, but
they still buy from them. I mean, if you put it in simple terms, and and they've got the balance sheets to withstand that as well, then then you should inflation should work for you, right? So you're going to make more money, um, and that's how you'll preserve your purchasing power. So buying companies that aren't making any money, and I completely agree with Phil on. Um, sorry, you said it much more eloquently than I did. Tech stocks that loss they're making, currently loss making tech. Loss making tech. Thank you. Um, you can't afford to wait until they finally, they're currently selling a dollar worth of goods for 80 cents when they need to send it for, sell it for a dollar 10. I don't see how they make that transition. But um, just buying good companies at reasonable valuations that, that have got pricing power is the, way, is the way we're playing it. Toothpaste and toilet paper, yeah, very know. inelastic, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> Some more than others. Yeah. <laughs> Alex, for yourself? We look at it very similar to what Brett was saying, that we're looking for companies that are basically self-sufficient, that have the ability to grow their margin, grow their market share, and not really worry too much about what's happening in the environment. We're predominantly industrial investors because of how we look at businesses. We like cash flows, balance sheets. And so um, for us to look at, say, the resources sector, which is on fire at the moment, absolutely. It's probably up. Small resources is up, what, 30 this calendar year, something like that. Right. And small industrials would be down probably 15 or so. So we're seeing some really well-priced industrial businesses that can raise prices, that can sort of gain that market share. And that's where we're focusing our attention because we think that you have to be in equities in environments like this. You just have to be in the right ones. And so if you've got a skill set and resources, then it's a great place to be. We don't. And so we're looking for industrials that we can have that pricing power to push through. Terrific. Thank you. Well, thanks for that. What I'll do now is pivot and take some questions. I think Tom's been collecting some for people texting them on here. And uh, we'll see if we've got some questions to come out of the crowd. Okay. I better read these first, shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> okay. We've got a question here. How do you approach brand new businesses, i.e., web models, new digital assets? Very warily. Yeah, look, one thing I always look for is revenue. If, if the customers are prepared to pay for something, then I think you have something of value. And I find it very hard to value something that doesn't have re revenue. So I'm very cautious and sceptical about anything that doesn't have revenue. Earnings? Well, <laughs> that's the next step. Start with revenue. And I think... You know, I think you've got to be a little bit flexible. I think there's been a lot too much focus on revenue multiples and things like that in recent years. And to me, you know, revenue multiples are as good as a shorthand. You know, PEs are a shorthand at the end of the day. I think, in my mind, the way I value everything is DCFs. And like a PE can give you a shortcut to a DCF. A revenue multiple can give you a shortcut. But you've got to look forward and work out, you know, when that company is going to make earnings and I think there's been too much focus on revenue multiples and I think a lot of companies that are listed have realised this and they've been prepared to spend two dollars to buy a dollar of revenue and as a result I think that's all blowing up in their faces at the moment. Alex? Oh, sorry. You want to go over it? You go. I was just going to say I think you should approach it like anything. Just realise their layers to the onion. Find experts if you don't have the capability. Get them to educate you. Go to Wikipedia, which I agree with you is a great source. Find out as much as you can and then apply your scepticism. But the curiosity takes you down these rabbit holes. 
You've got to go down at least 100 rabbit holes you know, a week, say no. Every time you keep saying times. onions, I keep thinking of you know, the complex character Shrek was and in the multiple layers of the <laughs> onion. It's going to stick. For yourself, Alex? I agree with all of those. That, um, that I find it hard if there's no revenue there at all, that I'm not the person for it. But if you can see where, and depending on what market environment you're in, if it's got revenue and you can see how that earnings and cash flow builds up over time, Mm -hmm. you put more attention to it. And, and as Rhett said, you do find those experts, you go and work out of the tech stack or whatever you're looking at actually works. You talk to people that will use the product that um, I think all of us up here would have said, what the hell would you do with Afterpay, get a credit card when it first came out? And um, we all learnt that was wrong at the time, that, mm -hmm. that there's a reason for these things to exist. But it's understanding what to pay for them. I'm probably not going to be the person that will pay the multiple that the investor bringing this company in wants because I'm going to discount it down to manage my risk. Yep. Okay. Can, off can, I, can I give you? Can I give you, audience, maybe just please one, do one trick that we've used is that when someone turns up with a great idea, and they've got a pack that's 30 pages, and 29 pages is the size of the market, and one page is the capital raising exercise, <laughs> we always say come back when there's 20 pages on how you're going to execute. Right, so you wouldn't be here if it wasn't a big market. Tell us how you're going to execute. And, and if we can believe that story, then, then we start getting interested. Terrific. Okay, we've got two more questions from the audience, which I think are good and valuable. So the second one was, or is, what was the most difficult period in financial markets that you as a manager have had to deal, deal with? And what are the key learnings from going through that period? Phil? Yeah, look, my most difficult period is probably the GFC. Um, you know, um, you know, we've been running Regal for a few years then. We had pretty good success and probably a little bit overconfident. And then we went into the GFC. And, you know, one of my biggest lessons, or my biggest lesson, I always say, is the benefit of liquidity. And, um, you know, when in the GFC, you know, we did have some leverage in the fund. We had a lot of exposure to small caps. And then we had a lot of investors that were redeeming. And that's not a good combination. Um, and so <laughs> that was a good lesson. Today's understatement. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, yeah, I found that the most difficult period. Um, but, you know, we survived and we're, I think, a lot better for, for having experienced it. And, and I think, you know, there are some managers who've had tough times around town and I think they're probably better after being through tough times, you certainly learn a lot more when things are tough than when things are going well. And I think, I think if you can survive the tough times, I think you're a better investor for it. Sure. Alex? I agree. The GFC, that you threw the textbook out, that um, how you got taught how economics and supply and demand and um, how the banking system worked just disappeared. And so you're learning everything from scratch. How how um, a perfectly good company that was moderately geared all of a sudden couldn't roll their debt. And so things like that, I think the, the pain of um, witnessing all of that meant that you're very cautious from that period on how much leverage is in the system, how much leverage is in a business, who their end customer is, how, what their debt facilities are split between. You looked at balance sheets in a very different way than you would um, before that period, where you take the COVID crash, it was, I think, the shortest, sharpest crash that we've had. Mm -hmm. And so what, how long did the GFC sort of top to bottom would have been 
18 months. months, something like that. And we're talking with COVID, it was yeah. done and dusted. Three weeks. In three weeks. And so I think the the multitudes of learning that you could take away from the GFC were, were bigger just because of the extent of the length of time it went for. And you worked out how really the economy is working. I think what we'll take away from COVID is um, security and um, having a, enough supply and logistics in this country or in any country that you're operating in when mm. your supply chains break down. I think, and when Australia was treating not as a one country but as single states, so I think that probably it took me by surprise and working out how much diversity my companies needed, not only with um, their manufacturing, et cetera, that they can't just operate in one or two countries, but that maybe they can't even operate on um, just the East Coast. They need to have a West Coast facility, facility as well. And for yourself, Fred? Well, it was probably two years after I started in South Africa when you had, forget about economic risk, you had political risk. You had people being assassinated that were central to a, a middle ground um, and realising that there's just so many things outside your control that it was almost uninvestable. And then you took that to the, G uh, the GFC and we, we couldn't buy anything. I mean, I'll never forget, we had probably 60% of our funding cash until we worked out that the government was going to underwrite the banks. So we, we, could, we could understand what sort of what was going to go on. It didn't help that I'd started my business three months before the, kind of like you, before the GFC hit. Um, and then it's the pockets of dominoes that, that emerge from nowhere. So there's one cockroach, there's going to be a lot more. Um, they just keep coming out of the woodwork. Guys who you never thought to over leverage themselves. And I, th I think we've got some of that going at the moment again. I think there are pockets of leverage everywhere. And that's why you're seeing a lot of these weird things happening in overseas markets and these, this, this big volatility. And it'll come out, there'll be a book or you know, you'll find out that a couple of people have blown themselves up. But Yep. Just understanding that everything's connected and things don't just, just happen. And one last question between us and drinks. Uh, what is the one thing that's keeping you up at night? Phil? Um, look, I'm actually sleeping really well at the moment. <laughs> so that's kind of come out of the blue for me. But um, I guess one of the... I'll rephrase the question. One of the biggest risks in the world... Um, is probably in my mind that, and again, back to you, what the market's, you know, a lot of market's very focused on interest rates, inflation, so I'm not so worried about that. One of the things that I, I like to worry about things that other people aren't worried about. So one of the things that I worry about at the moment is just that Chinese property market. I think it's the biggest bubble in the world. Um, a lot of Chinese just own property because they expect it to go up. They don't bother renting it, um, which in my mind is the definition of a bubble. Um, you know, Chinese property market's been driving the Chinese economy. Chinese economy's been driving the global economy. And it's starting to unravel. Um, you know, there's property developers going uh, broke. They're selling stock. Um, and, you know, China's never seen a, a fall in property prices. So I'm a bit worried about that. But yep. I'm still sleeping well. All right. <laughs> Alex? I'm a bit with Phil there, that the risks that you can see, everybody knows about interest rates and things like that, and the market's pricing that all in, so that's fine. It's the unknowns. That's the bit that, that scares me. What haven't we noticed that we should be paying attention to? Mm -hmm. And so it's always making sure that you're keeping a, a wide wide eye or periphery to seeing how what's happening elsewhere in the world and what could impact 
us here in Australia. And so it is China property. It is when um, probably three or four months ago, are we going to war in Ukraine? What will the Europeans do? Things like that. It's making sure that you're, you're just sort of well-versed what's out there. And it's a, it's a risk that you don't know, which is the one that's really going to blow you up. That's a hard one. Now, yeah. I think it, I'll give you the last word as podcast number one. <laughs> to celebrate the 100th episode, you can have the last answer. Rhett? What's worrying me? What's the one thing? I think the um, it's the she'll be right attitude towards supply chains. Everyone thinks it's just going to get better. It's just temporary. Um, I worry that maybe it's worse. Maybe it doesn't repair. I mean, globalisation is reversing. If you know, things could get, so it's not a matter of. So, so I say I've got pricing power. I've got illiquidity. Sorry, inelasticity of demand. But what happens if I just can't get the product to sell it? Yep. And uh, that's what's keeping me up. Terrific. Well, thank you for your time, everyone. Please. Join me in thanking Alex Clark, Phil King and Rhett Kessler and I'll see you again. Perfect. We're done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.